0: All right, now let's look at scriptures. <laughs> let's turn your attention to the Bible, okay? Open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 23. We're in this series called Fasting and Feasting. A couple of things housekeeping-wise as we think about the new series, Fasting and Feasting, we're passing out these guides, the resurrection prayer guide, uh, clarification. We're not Catholic. We don't believe all the theology of the Catholic Church, but we do recognize there's a universal season. Uh, So Lent actually comes linguistically from the spring. It's the lengthening of days. Right, and so we're like, man, cool stuff is happening. It's springtime, uh, and we're going to take that time and say, let's pray. Uh, let's together be unified as we read the scriptures and pray through these things together. We've also got some uh, directions in the guide for you on what it means to do gospel-centered fasting. Uh, so a lot of the misunderstandings, theological, theologically about fasting are that as you punish yourself or hurt yourself or go without, that somehow God is impressed with how hard you are on yourself. But when we studied this series starting off, we saw Jesus saying, you know what, my disciples are going to fast when I'm not with them. And fasting biblically is two things. It's a discipline, a spiritual discipline, but it's also just a spontaneous groaning and aching and longing. It's, it's this emptiness, like, Jesus, where are you, right? Uh, and so what we do when we uh, fast in a gospel-centered way is we recognize I'm already aching, I'm already longing for the new heavens and the new earth. I'm already longing to see Jesus face to face. And so I'm going to set aside a discipline where I say, instead of stuffing that longing and putting a Band-Aid on it with coffee or Netflix or ice cream or whatever, maybe I'll go without those things. So I can just kind of be real about that longing, be real about the ache, and and take that to Jesus in prayer. Have a focused time of prayer. So I encourage you to join with us. Again, even if you're not all about the fasting, grab the guide. We've got them in the basket at the back, and you can just pray through these prayers with us. The Lord moves as his people pray unified biblical prayers together. So we want to get us all on the same page with that. All right, we are in the series now, moving into the biblical feast of first fruits. So, as we have focused in the season of fasting during the week, often the tradition of Lenten fasting is to pause for Sabbath Sundays and feast and celebrate. So, we were like, hey, there's some feasts in the Bible. Let's go back and look at them. We're looking at those feasts. This week, we're looking in Leviticus 23 at the Feast of First Fruits. Pray for my mouth because that's going to be really hard for me to keep saying, okay? The Feast of First Fruits. Let's try to say it together. The Feast of First Fruits. Y'all are terrible. (laughs) I'm just kidding. You were great. It was fantastic. The Feast of First Fruits. Okay, have you ever seen this thing in a small business? You go to maybe a restaurant or dry cleaners, and you'll see a dollar bill framed over the cash register. Have y'all ever seen that before? Do you know what that's about? That is a celebration of first fruits. That is the business owner saying, I made my first buck. And this is a down payment. This is a sign. This is a token that there will be more i 'm encouraged i 'm going to lift this up i 'm going to celebrate right if they're, if they're people of the Lord, they give praise to God for that frame dollar bill. If not, they give praise to the universe or whatever, right but they 're celebrating that a dollar has been made and more dollars will be made. And so this is one of the little ways that we do a celebrating partying of first fruits in our culture. In the ancient world, it would have been more agricultural, and that's what we'll see in Leviticus chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab the black Bibles under the chairs. It'll be page 101. Leviticus is the third book of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We'll be in Leviticus chapter 23, page 101, starting in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And we will stop there As God speaks to the Old Testament, and we've been looking back at Leviticus, one of the things we have to remind ourselves is that we believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God. All of it is the voice of Jesus speaking to us. It speaks with His authority, with His relevance, with the urgency of a conversation with Jesus Himself. And so we want to pray that His Spirit would do what His Spirit loves to do, and that is reveal Jesus. Help us to see Him in these obscure texts. We've said this before, but it's good to say it out loud the Old Testament is, is more distant to us. It's, it's harder to understand to us, and, and that's okay. But Jesus is there. So I'm going to pray that his spirit would help us to see him. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you teach us. And we pray that your spirit would be with us as we study your word together. We love you. We trust you. We're eager to see what you have for us this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Feast of first fruits is this ancient agricultural feast where they would wave the sheaf of grain. They're like, we've got this first fruit, this first crop, and we're going to celebrate before God that this is a down payment indicating that there will be more crops. There will be more fruit. We can know God has provided, and that encourages us that God will provide more. And so as we study this, I want us to start with the Old Testament, look back at the original, where it started. We'll call that the first fruits of daily bread. It's about daily provision, crops, right? The the first fruits of daily bread. Secondly, we'll look at the first fruits of resurrection. The first fruits of resurrection. And then thirdly, we'll look at the first fruits of conversion. So what we're going to do is go back to the Old Testament, see where it starts, follow that through to the fulfillment in Jesus Christ, and then follow that through to, what does that look like in the daily life of the church? The job that God has given us to do. So we've got daily bread, resurrection, and then conversion. Okay, that's the direction that we're going. We'll start in the Old Testament and then bounce through the New Testament. So number one, we have the first fruits of daily bread, the first fruits of daily bread. So verse nine, we read this already. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel, say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Okay, so they couldn't practice this one right when they were starting yet because they hadn't you know, they hadn't harvested yet. So at the beginning of the Exodus, they're being released from their bondage, right? They don't have any uh, grain to harvest, right? They're just running for their lives. So they're not practicing it yet. And then they wander in the desert. God gives them manna and quail and provides for them, right? So they're not, they're not harvesting grain then. But when they get into the land and they start harvesting, they're going to start with this feast. And he says, what they are to do is they are to reap its harvest a sheaf of the first fruits. Most commentators say this was probably barley, Um, But whichever grain it was is not that important. The idea is that it was just the first new thing that was poking up out of the soil, right? The first thing that they could eat, the first fruit or crop that could provide for their daily sustenance. This was about provision. This was the beginning of the springtime, things just beginning to poke through and to grow and to blossom. We see that this is actually a theme in many cultures, um, theologians describe this as natural law, as one way of describing kind of how we look at the world and we just see how the world works and we respect God's work in the natural order of things. Another way that theologians describe this is general revelation. The idea is that when you go outside and you see sunsets, uh, we had fog this morning, uh, you see crops, you see animals, w- whatever, you see things in the natural world, the proper response is to praise God for that. It's to give Him thanks for that as the provider of our needs, as the one who takes care of us, as the one who made all things. Romans 1 is pretty clear, though, that often human beings have a different response. We look at the world that God has made and we refuse to give Him credit for that. It says we suppress the truth. And so there's basically two human functions with creation with nature, and with God's provision of your daily needs. You can either thank him for it, or you can hate him for it, right? You can thank him for it and say, God, you're taking care of me. You've made the world. You're awesome. Or we can say, God, I hate you. I don't believe in you. We can suppress the truth. It's really that simple. And so the number one application for us is, will will we honor God for the provision that he gives us? When we see a little flower poking through the spring ground, will we say, God did that. Thank you, God, for the beauty that you've made. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for giving me, I mean, I just turned 50. Thank you for waking me up one more day, right? Like, thank you, Lord, for another breath. Our attitude can shift so much day to day. I don't know if you notice this. Even as a believer, I can have those days where I just don't, don't appreciate his provision. But it is so much more joyful for me when I actually celebrate it. Thank you, God, for what you've provided. One of the common ways that we do this in our culture is the Thanksgiving feast. That's a common feast in our culture, and that's more at the end of the harvest instead of the beginning. A lot of different cultures, you'll do end of harvest celebrations, beginning of harvest celebrations, and the Jews have another celebration at the end of the harvest. But I grabbed a picture of people having a Thanksgiving feast. That's much of what a Thanksgiving feast is. It's just saying, God has provided. He's fed our families, right? He's provided abundantly for us. And so this can be a a once-a-year feast, like is described in the Feast of first fruits, or in our cultural celebration of Thanksgiving, or I think even better, it can be moment by moment. I think that's really the best application of this for us. I think the best application would be to pray the Lord's Prayer, Lord, give me daily bread, and then when he does, to thank him for it. To pray, God, will you Will you give me life one more day and help me to use it well? And then when he does, thank him. I think we take these things for granted so much, like it doesn't even occur to us to pray that way. It, we, we joke sometimes about the Christian tradition of praying at meals. I don't know if you've heard this joke, but there's like a joke that goes around in Christian culture sometimes that the reason you pray is so that your food won't be poisoned or that your food will be unpoisoned, right? It's already poisoned, but if you pray, then it'll be unpoisoned, right? No, that's not why we pray, we pray to thank God for our food. Like, God, you gave me food. And I think because we are so rich, and we have so much food in our culture, we, we get all sideways on that. Like, we, we don't remember that God provided that. Like, most of you will go home, and you'll have like a month's supply of food in your cupboard. So you're like, Dave, I don't need to thank God for food. I got, I got it taken care of. I don't need God to provide for me. I mean, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We have no idea. So thank him for what he's given you today. And don't worry about tomorrow. Just say, God, will you provide? And when he does, you thank him. This is, this is one of those really, really simple, but really deep spiritual practices. That so we would thank God for our breath. We thank God for our food. God, you're the provider of good things. First Timothy 4.4 4 says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. That's, that's what a table blessing is. It's, it's God, thank you. Thanks for providing for me. So I think that's a really good um, daily practice, a daily application of this, that we would just pray, Lord, provide daily bread, and then thank him when he does. Uh, but then, of course, we've talked about yearly celebrations, special celebrations during this season of, of feasting and fasting. Maybe next week, next Saturday night, next Sunday, you could have a special meal of some kind. Um, Maybe you could recreate your Thanksgiving meal, however your culture, your family does things like that, or maybe you could go out into the new spring that is blossoming all around us, pick a flower, and wave those flowers over your meal, you know, some kind of celebration of the first fruits, the first blossoms that God is bringing new life again in the springtime. It's the season, uh, it matches up somewhat with the season that they would have been in of the springtime of new growth Uh, Fortunately for us, because spring comes a little earlier around here, we we have new things budding up all around us. Um, Another thing that I think would be a good application of this is just giving. Uh, So first fruits is not just a feast that they would celebrate, but then it becomes a, a way that they would do their giving. It becomes a pattern for all of their sacrifices, for all of their giving. The idea is that you would set aside something from the first part that you would earn, first crop that would come up, the first dollar that you would make. Uh, the first uh, new calf or or a new animal born to your livestock. And those would be offerings that you would make to the Lord. And so this is a real act of faith because what you're doing is you're saying, God has provided and I'm going to give out of that first. I'm not going to wait until the end to give, but I'm actually give out of the beginning, marking my faith that he will continue to provide. And so this becomes a spiritual discipline for us. Uh, Historically, Christians, when you read the New Testament, give to two main things. That's giving to the poor To help your neighbor when they're struggling, widows, orphans, things like that, or giving to the proclamation of God's word, supporting the church, supporting the ministry. Those are two great directions to give towards, Uh, but we really like to stress here that you don't give in order to get something from God. You're giving out of your first fruits, out of your first parts of the provision that God's given you. You're giving because you're saying, God, you've already provided for me is it's really important to get that straight, and churches get that backwards a lot of times. They're like, give more, and and God will bless you, and there is a blessing that goes with giving, right? And so there's a sense in which that's true, but the motivation is not to get God to pay attention to you. God has already given you his son, Jesus Christ. Like, he can't give you any more than that. He's given you everything in Christ. And so our giving should be in an overflow, a response to that. Like, I want more people to know about Jesus, so I'll give to the church or I'll give to the missionary, or I want more people to, to know the, the grace and the provision that I'm enjoying. So I'll help my friend or I'll help this widow eat and have what they need. So giving first fruits is a response to God's provision, the daily bread that he gives us. Now, interesting little calendar thing here when you look at the details of the text, and I just learned this this week, right? So I'm, I'm learning new things about the Old Testament myself, um, the Feast of Firstfruits kind of overlaps with the Feast of Unleavened Bread last week, the seven days after the Passover. And so when you line it all up and you read the text, what happens is you have the Passover where the lamb is sacrificed so that God's judgment passes over his people. And then it says here that the firstfruits happens on the day after the Sabbath after the Passover. Well, that sounds kind of confusing, Right. So, what does that mean? The day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, that means that the first fruits comes on the Sunday, right after the Passover Lamb is sacrificed. So now think back to what we learned last week. First Corinthians five says that Jesus is our true Passover Lamb. And we know from the stories he was sacrificed during the Passover. He came to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, Moses and Elijah are talking to him about the exodus, the greater exodus he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. He accomplished that by dying on the cross for your sins and my sins. And then what happened on the Feast of Firstfruits? What happened on the Sunday right after Passover? The resurrection. The resurrection. So that brings us to our second point. Second point is that Paul says there's a firstfruits in the resurrection, and he was the fulfillment of this ancient feast. So his sacrifice, his death on the cross comes on Passover. And then on the Sunday after Passover, we have the Feast of First Fruits, and he rises from the dead. So we're going to flip to the New Testament now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you're in the Black Bibles, it's on page 961. First Corinthians 15, so last week we looked at chapter 5, it says Jesus is our Passover lamb, he's the one sacrificed, he's the one that took upon himself the sins of the world so that judgment passes over us, just like the Passover lamb foreshadowed all that in the Old Testament. Now later in 1 Corinthians 15, we'll pick up in verses 19 through 23. Verse 19 says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all, of all people most to be pitied. So he's making an argument here that if the resurrection is not really true, then our hope is just in this life, and if our hope is just in this life, it's kind of stupid. He's like, our faith is kind of dumb and limited. It's basically a self-help program then. Paul's like, I don't want any part of that. What Paul wants is cosmic salvation. Paul wants to overcome sin and death and the brokenness of the universe, and he's saying that's actually what we have in Christ. It goes on in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Gives us a little more detail here. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is a theological term called federal headship. The idea is that basically you belong to a tribe. You have a federal head. You have a representative, right? We're not talking about the legislature, those kind of representatives. Before God, you're represented, you're <laughs> represented uh, by the leader of your tribe. And the leader of your tribe is either Adam the rebel, who told God, I don't trust you. I want to do life on my own. Or your leader is Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who died for our sins. And so by faith in Christ, you cross over, you become a part of this new tribe this tribe of resurrection life in Christ. This is what he's describing here in these verses. Verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So what does this mean? Christ's resurrection is the firstfruits, right? So in the ancient practice, they would uh, wave their barley sheaf before the Lord in the temple. You go to the holy place, the priest would wave the barley sheaf saying, God, you've provided these good things, it's a promise, it's a down payment, you're going to provide more good things, we thank you, God. And then how is that translated into Jesus Christ's resurrection? Book of Hebrews says he goes up into the real holy place, heaven itself, and he's waving this first fruits of resurrection. And he's saying, there's going to be more. I'm going to bring a whole train behind me. More is coming, and we get to be part of that, and that's our hope. Our hope is not just in salvation from sin. That's a part of it, but that's all wrapped up as well. It's a package deal. It's, It's not just forgiveness. We're no longer guilty. We have a restored relationship with God, but it's also new creation. No more sin and death and pain and disaster and brokenness. He wipes away every tear from our eyes the new creation. That's what we're looking forward to. And we have the down payment that that's really true in Christ, the first fruits of resurrection. So again, verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. And so God gives us little gifts. Again, to pull back from the previous text, these things actually tie together our gifts of daily bread, are little tokens that God will provide Our gifts of daily bread are reminders God is good. He's with me. He's going to take care of me. But someday I don't have to worry so much about this. I'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. I'll be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I will have arrived and everything will be okay forever, eternity, real life, resurrection life. And so I think we still want to enjoy the gifts of daily bread as a little reminder of of the resurrection life, of what Jesus is going to pull back into the present. My wife made me guacamole last night. I have a picture. This is not her guacamole. Hers is even better. But when I, I don't know about you, but when I taste guacamole, I'm like, like, God is real. And I, I know I'm heading somewhere even better, right? And so we give... We give thanks for those, those little tastes. Those are, little, those are tokens, right? Like every good gift comes from the Lord. Every gift is a gift from his hand and we're to enjoy it and say, this is a token and a sign of something even better, right? We get this mixed up because a lot of times we have a, a, thea, a kind of a Sunday school theology of, of the floating care bearers, you know, and we're just like floating around in clouds, but it's going to be a new creation, right? It's like, it's going to be redeemed physical bodies and our brains can't, we can't comprehend, like, how can there be a world of a renewed physical creation, but without sin? Like, it's hard for us to put that together. We tend to separate and go, well, sin goes with physicalness, right? And, and somehow those things can't be... No, there's going to be a physical world where we taste and we enjoy and we celebrate God's presence forever with no sin and no pain. So, uh, number one application is eat guacamole, eat more guacamole, um... <laughs> I kid, that's not really it. Here's the application. Paul gives it all the way at the end of chapter 15. He he just rails on the resurrection. He celebrates the resurrection. He, he argues for the resurrection. He, he breaks out into song about the resurrection for an entire chapter. It's, it's the longest chapter about the resurrection in the New Testament. And if you want to study this more, we, we preached a few sermons on it uh, a year and a half ago. But the very end of the chapter, uh, verse 54, he starts to describe then, what the resurrection means for us. He picks this up in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. What does that mean? Uh, Most commonplace we use that is talking about like refrigerated items, right? Like that's probably where we think about that word. Uh, So it's saying here, uh, when food that can go rotten is transformed so that it cannot go rotten anymore. But he's not talking about food. He's talking about us, right? (laughs) So it's like when when we don't have to worry about going rotten anymore. That's what he's saying. There's a future like that coming. Here's another way he describes it. He says, the mortal puts on immortality. That's where we're headed. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where's your victory? O death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. Again, this is connected with our sin. Our sin separates us from a holy God. Our legal standing before God is important and central to this whole thing. But it's not all that it's about. So our sin really does separate us from God. And Jesus' death on the cross really does bring us back into the presence of God. Our relationship is restored. Our guilt is removed if you trust in Christ. But there's even more. There's even more. He says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So Jesus took away sin and he took away death, both and the down payment that He gives us, the first fruits remind us, reminds us this is really going to happen, like I will follow, I will also be resurrected from the dead, and then that is what translates into us being steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the lord right we do the work of the lord we serve our neighbors we love difficult people we tell our friends about jesus because of the resurrection and again we flip this around so often we think like well if i'm really steadfast and i'm really immovable then maybe god will bless me more then maybe i'll get better things in this life and the motivation of the new testament is exactly opposite of that god has given you everything in christ He's risen from the dead. That means you're going to rise from the dead because of that. Keep going. Don't give up. Your labor is not in vain. It's not a waste. You've not wasted your life if you've given yourself to him because he has risen from the dead and he's the first fruits. He's the deposit. He's the down payment that tells us more is coming. So I want to be very practical about a couple of ways that we can keep laboring, keep being steadfast and immovable. Just two specific things that I think are timely for us in our culture that uh, 1 Corinthians talks about. Paul talks about a lot of things. You could read the whole book. Go uh, do your homework and read the whole book. But a couple of specific things are sexual purity and humble outreach. These are two things that I think hit us on both sides of kind of the religious or non-religious divide, right? Uh, We are called as followers of Jesus to be sexually pure because of the resurrection, Not because we think we're going to get some kind of special blessing from him because we've done everything right and kept all the rules. No, his resurrection tells us he's worth it. And so even if I don't understand completely, because I live in this culture that is so confused about sexuality, that obeying the strict ethical norms of the Old and New Testaments almost don't make sense to our culture anymore. But I can look at Jesus and look at the resurrection and say, okay, he's... He's risen from the dead. He saved me. So because of that, I'm going to bind myself to him and obey his ethic. And my labor in the Lord will not be in vain. And then humble outreach. We see this again and again throughout First Corinthians. He's attacking their pride. He's saying you should actually care about other people. You shouldn't puff yourself up and think you're better than them. Paul says in his own example, he's like, I've, I've become weak for the weak. I've become like a Jew to the Jews, even though I'm not, no longer under the old covenant. I become like a Greek to the Greeks. I'm not going to hold on to my preferences and make them more important than this human soul, but I'm going to meet them where they are so that I can communicate the love of Christ to them. And so in our culture, again, that's so divided. And more and more, we're, we're told to pull away from each other. We see this teaching in First Corinthians that because of the resurrection of Christ, you can actually be humble, communicate with other people, enter into their world, try to understand the way they see things, and speak the love of Christ to them there. Again, we do this because of the first fruits of the resurrection. Third point is the first fruits of conversion, and this kind of follows from that last point as well. The first fruits of conversion, we'll flip over just a few pages. In the Black Bibles, it's page nine eighty nine, but we'll be in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Thessalonians chapter two. 2, Thessalonians chapter 2. The first fruits of conversion, uh, to define the word conversion, that means someone who didn't believe in Jesus now believes in Jesus. And we'd say they are now converted. Uh, Another way that the New Testament talks about this is the new birth, being born again. That's the way uh, Jesus describes it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. So the idea is that apart from Christ, we are, as we described earlier, suppressing the truth. We look at nature and we're like, God's not there. But then as we see him reveal himself even more... Beyond the revelation of nature, he reveals himself in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like God is there. I believe. I entrust myself to you, Lord. And when we do that, we're given new life. We're born again. That's conversion. And so this is described as first fruits in the New Testament. Uh, In some translations, it says beginning. uh, And that's, I think, the translators are thinking, like, you've never read the Levitical uh, feasts before, so you won't understand the word fruits." So they change it to beginning in some places. In, in the uh, ESV that I'm reading here, it actually uses the word fruits." So it's 2 Thessalonians 2.13. I think I've got it up on the uh, screen as well. I know we're jumping around a lot, so I tried to put more of the verses up on the screens. It says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. So it's saying God chose to give birth to you, to give new life to you, to save you as first fruits that more is coming, right? So we're, we're in this life. We trust the resurrection. We're, we're waiting around to make it to the end, the new heavens and the new earth, where we'll be resurrected. We're not there yet, God has work for us to do. And much of that work is just the daily work of of being good at our jobs and being good neighbors and planting trees and cooking meals and, and loving our families, right? Like a lot of that work is just everyday work, enjoying the daily bread that God provides. But he's also given us as believers a very special work to communicate this message to others, the hope of Jesus, to really relish this conversion this new life that he's bringing to others. And so Paul is saying we should be a people that celebrate this, celebrating conversion, celebrating this new birth, celebrating this new life, seeing it as a first fruits that we're like, hey, look, new life, like someone new believed in Jesus. This is incredible. So we want to be a culture. We want to be a church that celebrates new life. James says it in James 1.18 in very similar language of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures there's very similar concepts right by believing the truth we're given new life it's by god's sweet will his desire his choosing it makes god happy to do this and we should be happy when we see it and call it first fruits look first fruits more is coming more is coming he's going to save more people More people are going to believe in Jesus and God's going to use us to tell them to help us to get to that place. I grabbed a picture of a toddler kissing a baby and those aren't my grandkids, but about the same age as my grandkids. Uh, Those of you that don't know, I have grandkids. Someone told me the other day, they're like, you haven't talked about your grandkids in a while. So here it is. (laughs) My grandkids are adorable. And one of my favorite things is when we get a little picture of them being affectionate with each other. Kind of kind of funny to see them fight too now that we're grandparents. It's it's more funny than when you were a parent. But <laughs> but when we see them being affectionate, it's really beautiful, right? To see the older one kissing the younger one. And this might be a stretch for you, but this is the kind of community I think that we should have, right? We should have a kind of community where we we're loving the babies. We're loving the new birth. If you're new to Christianity, you may not know this about us. Uh, but culturally, we lean a little on, the, on the, like, the nerdy side of Christians. We're all about Bible study. Bible's in our middle name. Grace Bible Church, right? We love theology. We love to study the Bible. We want to help you learn the Bible. But the bad side of that is sometimes it can make the baby Christians feel like there's something wrong with them, or that they're less than. And we, we want you to just feel that little kiss on your forehead, okay? Like, we're glad you're here. We love you. We delight to have babies among us. To have those that are that are just waking up to the sweet truth that God loves them. We want you to know that you are welcome here. We're glad you're here. For those of you that are even still still not there, you're just wrestling. You have doubts. You have questions. We're glad you're here. We welcome you. We want you to see the good news of Jesus Christ. So, so how do we do that as a church? Um, like I get to do this all week long. You know, I get to spend my time studying the Bible and telling others about it, but. What about for you? You're working 80 hours a week. How are you going to tell somebody else about Jesus? Uh, What's that going to look like in your life? I think it starts with knowing that you're loved first. I think like getting your heart in that right place. As we look at these two texts, 2 Thessalonians 2 and James 1, they actually have a really strange, deep doctrine embedded in them, okay? And this doctrine is sometimes called predestination, But the word choose is used here. Sometimes it's called election. And this doctrine can be very confusing for people. Uh, Sometimes it can be taught in a heavy-handed way as this like philosophy that you need to assent to. Um, But what I want you to see in context here is it's about new babies. God's choosing is about his love for you. And we can have all kinds of other arguments about the theology. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. But if you don't get anything else out of this doctrine, it's that we see in 2 Thessalonians 2 that God chose you. What does that mean? He picked you out. You mean something to him. And then in James 1.18, it says it's of his own will. That word will is really much more of a feeling word, right? It's of his own desire. It's of God's wish. He picked you out. He adopted you. He loves you. If you don't understand anything else about that doctrine of choosing, I want you to understand this. If you believe in Jesus, it's because God loves you. God loves you. I want you to see it from that angle. I want you to relish in that. And that's the start of being able to talk to other people about Jesus. If you actually think God loves you, then you're going to want to talk to people about that. Then you're going to be like, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but God loves me and God loves you. I'd love to tell you more about that. Now, there's homework you can do. Uh, we've had these little cards out on the, on the lobby uh, book rack out there. It's called the Roman Road. These are key verses you can learn, and they kind of help you have an outline of being able to tell the story to other people. It's Romans 3.23, and Romans 5.8, and Romans 6.23, and Romans 10.9. It's called the Roman Road because it comes from the Book of Romans. It's the letter of Romans in the New Testament. but also just kind of takes you on a road of understanding what salvation's all about. First verse is like, hey, we're all separated from God. All of us have fallen short of his goodness. And the next verse is like, but Jesus died for you anyway. He didn't wait for you to clean yourself up. And then the next verse after that is like, you know what? There's, there's kind of one side and the other side. There's death that comes with turning from God and sin, but there's life in Jesus. And then the last verse says, you just, you just have to believe. All you have to do is trust him. And he's yours. He forgives you. He's chosen you. He delights in you. And so I'd love for you to grow in your ability to be able to speak that to other people, but it starts with you believing that he actually loves you first. As you believe that, then you have something worth talking about. And then because you got something worth talking about, then you'll, you'll do the work, do the homework, you'll look it up, you'll, you'll get better at sharing this. Uh, Tim Keller is a preacher that I've read a lot of his stuff, and he says the best way to get better at talking to people about Jesus is to do it badly. And so what that means is Just try, right? Like you got the Holy Spirit. It's going to be fine. We'll figure it out, okay? Just try to talk to other people and relish, enjoy, celebrate the first fruits of conversion in others. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 3. He talks about comparing him and this other worker. The other worker's named Apollos. His name's Paul. He's like, who are we? They were comparing him like, well, this guy's really good at saying this and this guy's good at this, you know, favorite preacher kind of stuff. He's like, we're just servants. And he clarifies He says, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned, God's really in charge of this, and he says, I planted, and then Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And so that that should always be our mindset as we're telling other people about Jesus, as we're seeking conversion, as we're praying for conversion, as we're praying for our city, for our world, for our missionary partners all over the world, we're praying that God would work by his Holy Spirit. One of the things that's been interesting as I've been studying this revival stuff in Asbury is people say things like, it's, it's wild how not wild it is. It's crazy how there's not a bunch of professionals and it's not sensational, right? It's what we sometimes call the means of grace. It's just people uh, reading God's word, confessing sin, worshiping. Like, it's just the basics. That, that's how God works. God works by his spirit through his word as people fall at his feet and say, God, you're enough. Will you do more? And we want to be a community that prays that he will do that. You can plant, you can water, but God's going to be the one that gives the growth. All right, we'll wrap up here. Um, the first fruits are seen in the Old Testament through daily bread. And then we saw how that's fulfilled in Christ, the resurrection. We have this hope that, that we'll be resurrected as well. We'll be in the new heavens and the new earth by faith in Christ. And then the New Testament says we want to celebrate that being a place of conversion. That's a part of first fruits as well. This a down payment of there's, there's conversion and there will be more conversion. And that's what we're about while we're waiting for the end of all things. But we can still struggle, right? Like it's still tiring. We still ache. We still long. We still get tired. Um, it's difficult. It's painful. And so the word first fruits as a concept is used one more time in the New Testament to go alongside our aching, to go alongside the groaning that we feel. And Paul uses it in Romans chapter eight to say, God has sent his spirit. His spirit is with you. You're not all on your own. You groan, I groan, we ache, we long, but God has given us this down payment of his Holy Spirit, the first fruits of his Holy Spirit to walk with us and to know that we belong to him, to be reminded day by day, That we can trust him. And so I want to end with that. The spirit has not left you. He's not abandoned you. He's the one that does this special work, Paul says in Romans 8, of helping you to cry out Abba Father. Helping you to cry out to your daddy and say, God help me. Be with me. And then Paul says he even goes so far as to pray for you. I don't know how to pray. You don't know how to pray. The spirit intercedes on our behalf. He's the first fruits. He's the down payment that we can trust that God is with us. Let me pray. God, thank you that you love us. We thank you that you're with us. Um, And Lord, we pray that you would continue to lead us to be a people who who love you, who praise you. We pray that you would work through us for your glory in a way that your name would be known. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.